I normally work with teenagers, and usually teenagers who are really disinterested in what I have to say. Um, Young Life is a ministry, and we um, reach out to teenagers who would maybe be disinterested in the gospel, or maybe if in the South they're apathetic about what they've grown up in, the culture of Christianity. And so normally when I am speaking, it is to teenagers who are like resisting the temptation to use Snapchat and just completely zone me out. And so if you guys fall asleep, that just feels normal. So it's dim in here. No, but normally even with you guys, I tell a story before I launch into scripture. And normally it embarrasses me or Mark. But this morning, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to launch right in. I do have a movie clip because I wouldn't be somebody who speaks to teenagers without a movie clip, but that'll be at the very end. So you're going to have to figure out. I'm going to tease you a little bit. It's from the Sandlot. And so while I'm sharing, if you're just one of those people that needs something else to think about, you can just be wondering how in the world is she going to tie in a movie about baseball to Ephesians chapter 3? Okay, so we are in a series right now in the book of Ephesians um, called In Him and In His Ways, and um, we're going to jump into chapter 3, um, and I'm gonna, we're going to do verses 1 through 13, but I'm going to do verses 1 through 6 to start us off. So Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of, uh, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the ministry made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the ministry, mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So what's happening here in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is about to launch into a prayer. And what I would argue, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of scripture. So he starts out with this, for this reason, I... And then it's like he gets excited and he goes into this whole bit about a mystery. I'll actually end with our benediction, praying for you, that beautiful prayer. But he goes into this little section for 13 verses about this mystery that God has revealed. And what he's saying is is that it is his mission to reveal to the world that God is saying that Gentile believers are full heirs just as the Israelites are God's chosen people. To break that down a little bit, what he's basically saying, imagine this scenario. Imagine your neighbors down the street just came into this large, I mean, incredibly significant inheritance. I mean, it is going to mean money, it's going to mean gold, it's going to mean jewels. I mean, just the greatest of wealth. And then you, just humbly down the street, learn, I'm included into their family. For you, if you're just the Joe Schmo neighbor down the street, don't have any relation, no blood relation to those people who are just getting this big inheritance, you've just won the jackpot. 
I mean, this is the best news. You've done nothing to deserve it whatsoever. This is the best thing you can think of. You're already thinking through how you're going to spend the money and enjoying the riches. But if you are a full-blood relative, the people down the street, you feel like somebody's just stole something from you. Something that you deserve. Something that's always been yours. You're a little ticked off. Why? That makes no sense whatsoever. And so for a Gentile, they're hearing that the God of the universe, the creator God, in comparison to all other gods of antiquity who were always lording over you, expecting you to be a slave to get any of their riches, that you must work for me. No, this is Yahweh. The God of the universe, who is all-powerful, all-sovereign, the one you've heard about, that God, the God who came near, who came not to be served, but to serve, that that God, the one that they call Emmanuel, God with us, this humble God that doesn't say clean yourself up, but this God that says I'm right here. I'm meeting you right where you are. That that God has included you in, not just as a friend, not just as someone that is allowed to come near, but as family, as an adopted son or daughter with full privileges. For the Gentile, it's almost too hard to believe which is why you see them try and take on so often um, everything that the Jews did culturally, trying to almost earn their way. I mean, it's grace that is so hard to even understand. And so for the Gentile, I mean, it is humbling. It is, I can't believe this God is going to call me by name. But for the Jew... God's chosen people for Israel. Oh, that's hard to swallow. I've always been the one. I've always been inside. I've always been the one that deserves this. So there's this mentality of scarcity, almost. A sense of loss. A sense of feeling threatened. And I don't know about you and what area of your life right now feels scarce. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your patience. Oh, I'll tell you all a story. I wasn't planning on this. Um, you know when you've, like, got to do something important and you, like, procrastinate a lot? I was doing that yesterday. I wanted to be, like, preparing really well for this, but instead we took our family to Wiseacres Farm yesterday. It's, like, so great if you're, like, a parent, you get to take your kids. But how exhausting. If you got, like, older kids, you remember what it was like to try and be an awesome parent and take your kids to fun things. But those fun things are really exhausting for parents. So we get home, we put our 2-year-old down for a nap, our 5-year-old, she can kind of entertain herself a little bit. Mark went down to actually work on something for warehouse for our welcome wagon. Um, that's funny in itself. Um, and, and I was like, oh, 
we just got a new mattress. That thing looks real cozy. I'm not even a napper, okay? This is how hardcore I wanted to procrastinate. And so I just like take like a 10, 15 minute little snooze break. I come out to the kitchen because I just had a feeling. You ever just feel like that intuition of just like something's not right in the house? It's maybe a little too quiet. I come out, there's basically a flood in our kitchen. There's literally like, we have like an absorbent rug in front of our kitchen sink. And there was like a visible three inch deep puddle on top of the rug. And I'm going like, what? You know what I mean? Is this like a pipe that burst? And then, um, oh man, I should have brought it up here. Mark, can you walk? I know this is super embarrassing. Can you walk that up here? Because we actually have it here. My daughter was watching a show called Gabby Cats, and in it, they show you how to do science experiments. And this was really clever. Kids are super anxious these days. And so they were trying to teach kids how to make a snow globe. And um, I was like, why in the world would you tell kids it's okay to get out water and glitter? Like, that's a terrible (laughs) idea. Shut this show down. And so um, she was by herself trying to get a container. She chose Tupperware. And then she was going to draw a cat face on the Tupperware and then fill it with water, fill it with glitter, and then put a top on it and shake it. Well, kids don't know which lids fit on which Tupperware, first of all. So even in the trying to fill Tupperware with water, that was a mistake. And then she tried so many different Tupperwares with lids, and she would shake, and it just was like water everywhere. Finally, I found her a jar, got some hot glue. We did cat whiskers and ears. I don't even remember what I was telling you guys that. But here's the deal. Scarcity. My patience. (laughs) What a a shift, right? (laughs) Turn left. Um, My patience was super scarce yesterday. Mommy's on edge because she's got to preach, you know? And I just looked at it, and I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, you're not even that kid. Your brother's going to be that kid. You're not this kid. Like, you're, you're firstborn. You're type A. You would have, like, woken me up from that. Mom, is it okay if I make a mess? You know? Um, I don't know what feels scarce right now. Maybe you have been waiting on something. Um, And it feels like your patience with God feels scarce. Maybe hope feels scarce for you right now. Maybe wanting the same thing over and over and over again. Lots of things. We are so fragile and so resilient all at the same time. Imperfect people. If you're at Warehouse, you know that fully well. So for Israel, to hear that they're no longer the special ones, that this is for all, there's scarcity in that. So much of the New Testament, so much of Jesus' ministry is about when outsiders are made insiders. When those on the outskirts are brought near. When God makes time for the lowest, of lows. 
One of my favorite accounts in Jesus' ministry is when Jesus ends up healing this blind man um, by the side of the road. I like in Luke's account of it. We're going to read in Luke 18. And I want you to pay attention to the people who are leading the crowd in front of Jesus. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So picture the scene. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, people are following, I mean, day and night without thought of the direction they're headed or if there's going to be food. I mean, he couldn't, I mean, he would have to hide himself just to get away from the crowds. So he's on his way, making his way to Jericho, and there's a crowd following him. And then there's this blind man begging for change just outside the city. And he hears something different from his day-to-day hearings. He almost hears this like dull roar as if like a parade is about to come by. And so he's kind of scrambling going like, what is that? What is that? They finally say it's Jesus of Nazareth. Clearly he's heard the tales of this God-man, this man claiming to be the Savior, the Messiah. And so he starts shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me. When the crowd finally gets to where this man is begging for change, those who are at the front of the crowd, they rebuke him. I mean, they literally scold him for wanting Jesus' attention. But they're the leaders of the crowd. For whatever reason, they've given themselves some like privilege, and they think they need to protect Jesus from this man. That what we're doing right here is so important He does not have time for you. Don't slow us down. And so high and mighty, they're leading the crowd. This way, Jesus, ignore this man. He doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, man. I find myself in Scripture reading these stories over and over again because if it's not the blind man, it's a bleeding woman. And if it's not the bleeding woman, it is somebody who is paralyzed with every part of them or it's somebody of a bad reputation. And there's so much of me that can relate to that person begging, but then there's this part of me that I really don't like, but I really relate to. I feel like the person leading the crowd, ordering Jesus what to pay attention to and what not to. That somehow I have this privilege that I'm okay hate that part of me. Jesus does exactly what he always does. He draws an outsider near and he restores their dignity. 
completely miss that sometimes. Paul goes on in the book of Ephesians. We'll finish our passage for today, 7 through 13. And he says, I became a servant of this gospel, this gospel of grace, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am, the less, I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul's reminding us that this radically hospitable picture of grace is meant to be revealed by the church and not like churches in building but churches in us God's people that we're supposed to be the visual representation of God's grace to the world by the way that we live our lives by our generosity by our humility we should just reek of God's grace. Daryl Bach says it this way. I think we've got a, yep. It says, the church is to be an audiovisual display of God's reconciling work. In this primary way, she, the church, testifies to God's grace and wisdom. So Paul encouraged living life in Christ in such a way that reconciliation is the dominant feature of the church. The church is supposed to be the audio-visual display of God's reconciling work. The church testifying to God's grace and wisdom. I could give you a laundry list as to the ways I get in the way of that. N.T. Wright says this about the church and our role. It says, this is to happen through the church. Not we should quickly add through what the church says, though that is vital as well, rather through what the church is, namely the community in which men, women, and children of every race, color, social, and cultural background come together in glad worship of the one true God. And so I think about myself. I'm in full-time ministry. I do so many things to work at my relationship with God. I mean, some of y'all do CrossFit and work out, and that's great. I have so many times attempted to be that person. I'm just not. But like, I, I make a living helping people understand about God's grace. And yet I still look at my life and go, how do I just miss it? How do I live in this scarcity mentality where it's like, I just want what's for me and, you know, there's not always an overflow for other people. So I'm a visual person and I'm not a graphic designer, 
but you're going to see some graphics that I created. Show us this first triangle, Scott. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Literally lines. Um, okay. So at the vertex, vert what do you call the little point at the bottom? Is that the vertex? Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Okay. So at the vertex, down here where the point comes at the angle, for me, this is what I picture is this is when I um, came to faith, when I became a believer. My understanding of myself was pretty small, and my understanding of God was pretty small. And so the distance between me and God was like a pretty small and acute angle, if you will. Um, but what satisfied that gap between me and God was the cross. I knew that apart from Christ's work on the cross, I had nothing. I fully understood my identity as a sinner, and that the only way to get to God would be through the cross. As time went on, I understood a lot more about myself and the depth of my human condition and my brokenness, but you also learn a lot more of God's holiness. And there's this, you see that separation more and more and more, and if you're growing in your relation with Christ, the cross still satisfies that. But here's what I think happens in my life. You can show the next triangle. Is at some point, it's like I let the cross just be so big, but not big enough. And then show the next triangle. And then it's almost like there's this gap there where I begin to fill it. And this is my own story, so I'm not putting this on you, but I've, you know, workshopped this a little bit and some other people feel the same way. That gap, for whatever reason, becomes this self-reliance, maybe this self-righteousness, this lack of confession in our own lives. Maybe we get a little bit judgy towards other people. We get comfortable being known as a Christian or a follower of Jesus, less of a humble spirit. When I was in high school, it's when I came to faith. And I was completely unchurched before that. And so when I would come to church, I would look around and I'm just like, this is a foreign place to me. But I would notice these um, women um, who were quite elderly and they would sit towards the front and for most of the service, they would weep. And I was thinking, you know, really compassionately about them and I was like, why are they weeping every week? You know, at first I thought maybe they had lost somebody and, you know, they were weeping for that reason. But I noticed a lot of times they were weeping during worship. And as time went on and I understood my faith more, I understood that this was a group of women who deeply understood the depth of grace. The depth of what it cost God to be our rescuer. The depth of their salvation. You see, their cross kept growing. Where I think a lot of us as followers of Jesus, we fill it with all the other stuff. Because maybe for you to feel okay in life, success has been what's done it. It's like you have the cross and then some success. You have the cross and then some, you know, pats on the back. Maybe it's the cross and some money. Maybe it's the cross and your status or that promotion or I finally got that thing I wanted. 
or it's that temporary pleasure that you just keep there to make yourself okay. I think for me, when this is the way that I live my life, with all that stuff there, that's when I become somebody who's not a great giver of grace because I'm not receiving it for myself. airing all my dirty laundry up here this morning. Tim Keller says this about the gospel, that we are far more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's all grace. There's no need for filler. There's no need for anything else. What if we as the church truly believed that God's grace was sufficient for us? What if we stopped filling the gap and received God's full grace, his overwhelming radically hospitable grace for us? What if we forgave others? What if we forgave ourselves? What if we stared at what was in the gap, that filler, and said those things can go? If we allow God's grace to be efficient or sufficient in our lives, it'll never be efficient. But if we allow God's grace to be sufficient in our lives, we might just be the most free, the most inclusive, and the most generous people. I want to end our time with a little video clip. You're like, I still don't stand a lot. It's not coming to me. If you remember, I'm going to totally spoil the movie, but the movie came out in 1993, and so that's on you if you have chosen not to see it yet. It's a movie about a group of boys in the neighborhood who play, you know, some games of baseball in the summer. There's this dirt lot, this sand lot that's in their neighborhood. And so every day with a baseball, they go and they play games of uh, baseball. And they're, they're afraid to hit a home run because that'll mean the ball goes over the fence and they'll lose their ball. Because they have built it up in their mind that over the fence lives this dog that is this like ferocious beast. I mean, they think it is literally a monster that is going to get them if they ever try and get their balls back. And so sure enough, it's a day, they run out of baseballs and they have to go, oh, can't play anymore. But there's this new kid who came to town. He knows nothing about the game of baseball. And he's thinking to himself, oh, I know where we could get a baseball. And so he runs back home, he goes to his stepdad's trophy shelf, and he grabs a baseball that's on the shelf. It is a baseball that is signed by Babe Ruth. He doesn't realize the value of this ball. He brings it to them. Nobody really looks at it. They start playing, and sure enough, home run! Now he's panicking because he's going, I stole a ball. He doesn't even realize the value of the ball yet but he knows he stole this ball and he's got to get it back. So the whole movie is them trying to get this ball back from this ferocious beast of a dog. We're going to pick up in the movie at the very end 
when this dog has gotten loose and chased them all over town, and now they feel bad and they need to bring the dog back to the owner. And I want you to pay attention. It's James Earl Jones is the uh, owner of this dog. And I want you to pay attention to the joy in this man. Take a look. Get out. I'm telling you guys. Should have just turned it loose. Um, uh, well, uh, we, uh... Well, what happened was we hit a baseball into your yard. We tried to get it back. So you're the ones that making all that racket. Yes, sir. You get it? Um, yeah. Well, first time that anybody ever got the best of old Hercules. Why don't you just knock on the door? I'd have gotten it for you. this baseball. You're not in trouble. You're dead where you stand. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. 
Here. I'll trade you. That's really nice of you, but that ball really is signed by Babe Ruth. So is this one. With the rest of the 1927 Yankees. Murderous Row. Lou Gehrig. Babe Ruth. But why would you trade? That one's all chewed up. I got a lot of good stuff. Look at that stuff. Besides, you needed more than I do. George? I sure did. And he knew me. Y'all are going to go home and watch that now. Dink it enough. I love when he says, I've got a lot of good stuff. And I think about us in this church. And I know a lot of your stories. I don't know all of them. But for those of you who have said yes, Lord, I want you in my life. You've got a lot of good stuff. God's grace is sufficient. It's more than sufficient. It is abundant. And we have it. I think there's so many other things that are clouding that for us. And so this week, I want you to go back to the basics. This week, I want you to try and receive as much of God's grace for yourself as you possibly can. I want you to, for five minutes a day for this next week, just lay it all out there for God. Just pray and, like, just unload. Just confess. Say, God, this is my junk, this is my stuff, this is what feels messy, this is what feels broken, this is what feels entitled, this is what feels vain and prideful and gross. And then just receive his overwhelming grace for you. I don't know the last time you did that. Man, I, I would love for it to be a daily thing. That you not just do the quick prayer of like, oh God, help so-and-so, they've got this thing, and oh God, hail Mary for this thing at work, and oh God, this. But this depth between us and Jesus where we go, oh God, this is where I am just wrecking things. And just lay it out there and allow his grace to wash over you. That his grace is sufficient for us. I would love to pray for us this morning. Um, let me pray. Lord, I confess my ego and my pride and my self-sufficiency. My ways where I rely on myself ways where I do everything to improve an image, the ways when I go that temporary thing is so much more easily attained, where 
right, align myself with the leader of the pack versus the blind beggar. Lord, we are broken and needy and desperate before you, and you have everything. Lord, your grace is sufficient for me, it is sufficient for my friends in this room, for those listening. Come, Holy Spirit, come and convince us of that. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.